Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Ryan Hughes, Head of Fund Selection at AJ Bell. Major stock market indices typically include all the major companies in a given country or region, but one of these has had a glaring omission for years. While MSCI Emerging Markets Index includes many of the major companies and markets in these regions, it doesn't include domestic listed Chinese companies, known as A-shares. But this is set to change. Kate, let's start with a bit of background on this. Why has MSCI refused to include Chinese domestic A shares in its emerging markets index? Um, well, yeah, we should say that China's stock market is huge. So it's the second biggest in the world, worth $7 trillion. But it's also a highly restricted market, particularly to foreign investors. There are loads of quotas in terms of the amount of stocks that foreign investors can hold. And uh, there have been big restrictions on taking money in and out of the market. Added to that, stock suspensions have been a big issue and a big sticking point for MSCI, certainly. Um, Markets do, or other markets, do allow trading halts in similar ways. But in China, um, it's widespread and you can get stocks um, stopping trading for several days when they fall below a certain value. Um, And then people obviously can't get their money out. And we did see that um, certainly in in the crash of 2015 and also in 2016. So all of that means that generally it's quite a restricted market um, and some transparency issues too. Okay. Now, why has uh, MSCI changed its mind? Well, um, every um, every year they've been reviewing this and, and steadily China has been working on opening up its market, um, making it more accessible and more transparent for foreign investors. Um, I think some big developments have been the Shanghai um, Hong Kong Connect and Shenzhen Stock Connect Um which are programs which enable traders in, in both markets to trade onshore and offshore listed stocks. Um, so it just kind of opens up that market, makes it more accessible. And I think generally the feeling is that, that China has, has kind of made some steps towards making the market better for foreign investors. OK, now what exactly does MSCI um, plan to include in its emerging markets index going forward? It's 222 China A large cap stocks which are being included. So that's not the whole A share market by any stretch. Okay. Um, So how much of the A share market do these 222 shares represent? And what proportion of um, MSCI emerging markets will China constitute when these are added? Um, So it's actually 5% of the total A share market. um, And that's going to translate into 0.73% of the emerging market index. Interestingly, the original plan uh, when this was first mooted or when China uh, was being talked about being added um, the original plan was to stage that five percent up gradually so eventually adding all a shares now that that is still a potential but the but MSCI will be consulting on on whether or not to increase that five percent to you know 50 100 percent over the long term or not Okay, now that portion of Asia doesn't sound very big, um, but obviously it's being added to some existing China exposures. So how much will China in total um, constitute of MSCI emerging markets when this when these 222 A shares are added to it? Uh, well, yeah, China um, currently makes up just under 30% of the index, and that's in eight shares, which are offshore listed Chinese shares. So when this is added, it will just be a little over 30%, so about third. Okay, and when does this take effect? 
So it's in two stages, um, in May and August next year. Okay, so investors are not going to get up tomorrow and no. uh, see a big change. Now, to be honest, though, it doesn't sound like a big change. You know, if it's just going to be, you know, China's already just under 30%, it's going to be a little more. So is there really any difference to anybody or anything? Well, it doesn't sound like a big change, but in terms of the assets that are going to be shifting around as a consequence of this, it's a massive change. Um just think about anybody holding an ETF tracking the MSCI Emerging Markets or, in fact, the MSCI All Country World Index or the MSCI China Index, which are all relevant. Anyone tracking those will see a range of new stocks added. And that's a huge volume of assets tracking that index. And also, we have to think that this is the starting point of potentially a long term trend of much more A shares being added to the index, which I think is another quite important thing to think about here. Okay, so if you're an investor with um, a passive fund tracking MSI Emerging Markets or one of the other indices you mentioned, your fund might change in 2018. But what are active investors? I mean, obviously, a lot of um, investors get their exposure to emerging markets in those regions via active funds. So presumably, that's not going to be an issue for them? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Active managers are obviously not obliged to mimic, or they shouldn't mimic the indices they are benchmarked against. But the fact remains that A shares will now be included in the indices, which which they're kind of performance is measured against. So ostensibly, if A shares were looking like a great bet and about to rocket, an active manager benchmarked against the MSCI emerging markets might want to shift their allocation to avoid falling far behind that index. Okay, so something for everyone to look out for then. Ryan, what do you make of this change to MSCI emerging markets index? Is it a good thing to include China A shares? I think this has very much been on the cards for a number of years and uh, we've been expecting this decision to come and the MSCI have put it off uh, year after year. Um, So I think ultimately it is a good thing. It's the first step of China being accepted really into international markets Uh, and uh, they've got quite a long way to go in terms of improving corporate governance and financial reporting standards uh, and those types of things. But I think this is very much a message from international markets that the the improvements that they've made are good uh, and they need to do more. And if they do more, then we can see that weight increase from where they've started from. Okay. Now, having um, a market like China in the MSI Emerging Market Index, you know, will it make the funds that track it riskier? Because I think, as mentioned, it has been a volatile market and there's corporate governance issues. Um, you know, will your risk drastically rise? I think what we would expect to see is, given the initial weight is relatively low to the uh, to the Asia market, then I, I don't see a huge change in the in the risk of the overall index. Uh, I mean, we've had Chinese uh, stocks that have been listed overseas within the Emerging Markets Index for a very long period of time, and so we're used to the uh, the the economics and the the politics that go on uh, within uh, within China having an influence on these broader indices. Uh, but I think. Ultimately, uh, it doesn't change the risk today, but but certainly over time, we would expect that the the allocation to China to increase quite significantly uh, as more and more of the index gets included, uh, and that will ultimately play quite a big part uh, of the emerging market index, and then could uh, see a greater increase uh, in risk for uh, for those investors. Okay, well, one one thought there. We you know we talk about China being risky. I mean, the point is this is an emerging markets index, so aren't all the things in there risky anyway? I mean, is China actually riskier than Brazil or you know India or or, or all the other things in emerging markets as it is? I think it's not. 
it's not necessarily a question of absolute risk. I think it's uh, a question of influence on global markets. Uh, so there are other countries that I would certainly consider to be riskier or have poorer corporate governance or uh, have bigger, uh, yeah, more more concerns around what happens within financial reporting. But China is uh, a big beast in the international markets. Uh, it has a great influence on what happens in the rest of the world, uh, even though it's a relatively small part of global markets in terms of a weighting uh, when uh, when the government speak when they announce changes it can have huge ripple effects into uh, more developed markets and we've seen that over the last few years so i think we need we need to factor it in not just in terms of an absolute weight but in terms of influence okay on the subject of influence i'll just pick up one of kate's points about active managers possibly feeling they might have to buy it do you think that changing this index which obviously some emerging markets funds benchmark themselves against is it going to have a major effect on active funds I think in the initial short term, we won't see a major impact. I think, well, some active managers will certainly see this as an opportunity, a way to uh, to really exploit some price inefficiency in the A-share market, which, as you've said, is very volatile. It's been dominated by retail investors who uh, historically we've seen and the Chinese local investor has been uh, uh, quite unpredictable in the way that they invest and behave. And we've seen sharp uh, movements in share prices. Uh, and that, to a good active manager, should be welcomed as a, a great opportunity to potentially add some more value uh, and widen their opportunity set. Okay, thank you, Ryan. And you can see Kate's full report on the addition of China A-shares to MSCI Emerging Markets Index in this week's magazine and the website. Passive funds, such as exchange-traded funds, are cheap, but still have costs which are reflected in their charges to investors. And one cost these types of funds have to pay is not low, and in some cases accounts for the majority of what investors are charged. Kate, what is this? This is the licence fee paid to um, an index or index provider uh, tracked by the ETF. So, for example, the FTSE 100 or the MSCI, um, anyone tracking that index, or in fact anyone in the financial industry, so asset managers, wealth managers, anyone making reference to an index or the constituents of that index must pay a licence fee, uh, which can be pretty hefty. Okay, so how much of an ETF's fees do these make up then? Well, so this is um, a pretty opaque world um, and fee deals are negotiations between an index provider and an ETF issuer, which obviously are slightly dependent on the, um, the power of, of both. Uh, but I've spoken to many people who say that potentially as much as five basis points of an ETF's ongoing charge, which, you know, ostensibly could only be five basis points or seven basis points, is made up of that index fee. And that is just because index providers like FTSE Russell, for example, MSCI, they've got a huge amount of power in this industry uh, just because of the level of demand from investors, asset managers to track those popular indices and, and the real lack of competition. Basically, almost all of your fee then is maybe going to an index provider? Well, as, as I said, it's very much dependent on, um, you know, issuer to issuer. So, and there's no set, there's no set price list um, for many of these things. Uh, so in some cases, yes, providers are saying that they're barely making any margin on some of these ETFs, potentially losing money, um, or for the most part, just scraping a margin on those most popular um, ETFs. Okay, well, it's not good for them, um, you know, as well as investors. So are ETF providers trying to do something about this? Well, so there there are a few things uh, that they are doing. So firstly, I think the important thing is what this means for investors. And as I said, it doesn't, the fact is that the areas where these ETF 
providers are facing the most intense price competition are also those areas where the index providers have the most power. Um, so in fact, what this doesn't mean is that you're necessarily paying more for those broad indices. Uh, so for example, an S&P 500 ETF, but maybe it means that you're paying slightly more for other ETFs where the issuers are having to kind of make up that margin, make up the revenue. Um, so for example, we have seen this proliferation in smart beta ETFs in slightly more niche um, products. And um, if you wanted to be slightly cynical about it, you, you could say that potentially some of that is due to the ETF issuer having to, having to claw back some of that revenue. Um, it also means that it's much harder for smaller ETF companies to compete on these most popular ETFs um, just because that margin is so tiny and you need such a volume of assets to make it worth your while. Uh, so it might mean that there are fewer um, ETF companies operating in that market. In terms of what they're doing about it, one thing they're doing is potentially beefing up securities lending. So this is where ETFs make money by loaning out their stocks to a third party. It's obviously been fairly controversial because this does bring in some counterparty risk. Uh, but we've certainly seen BlackRock relax their rules on how much stock uh, they will lend out and also on the what collateral will be accepted back. Vanguard recently started stock lending for the first time as well. So that is a way that they're kind of generating more revenue. And we're also seeing ETF issuers switching provider in some okay. cases. So we've seen, for example, Vanguard did it a few years ago, switching away from MSCI to FTSE on an emerging market index. And Lixor recently switched from market IBOX to FTSE actuaries in bond indices. And then investors did see a big chop in ongoing charge as a result of that. So, you know, it's, it's an area where, in fact, the largest issuers obviously have the most power, Vanguard um, and Lixor being big names. It's much harder for smaller ETF companies to, to wield any power in, in this kind of situation. OK, so that's interesting. You've given um, two examples of moving providers. You know, are there any other? Um, is it just those or, you know, how, how widespread is this switching providers and who, you know, who, which, which index providers are, are, are proving to be more competitive? Well, I guess on the big indices, there remains a real lack of competition. There are new entrants to the market. So there is a company called Selective and also Bats Europe bringing in competitor indices. So BATS have bought in a BATS 100, for example, to rival the FTSE. But so far, you've got no ETFs tracking that. Um, where another interesting dimension to this, I guess, is wealth managers who do seem to be taking more of a stand. And in fact, if you read my article, I highlight one wealth manager who is furious about the fees the FTSE are charging and has actually moved over to BATS as a result. So this is a big issue and it's just about who has the power to take on the index giants, I guess. Okay. Um, Ryan, do you think many ETFs and passive funds are likely to switch to tracking indices from less well-known providers such as BATS? Um, sadly, I think they probably won't in the short term. Uh, and, and that's because we've, the likes of uh, FTSE and MSCI are so well established. They, they effectively are operating either in a monopoly or a duopoly in terms of being able to uh, exert their pricing pressure on the people that want to use their data and effectively want to use their brand. Uh, and, and while you, you see the likes of, of BATS that, as, as you say, have launched a, a 100 uh, tracker that looks very, very similar, 
I think it's uh, there's a lot of comfort factor that comes for investors when they see the term FTSE, which has been around for many, many years, and they, they, they recognise and they, they have a resonance with it and they understand what it stands for. Uh, and it, it, it's very hard, I think, for new entrants to really break into this market. Uh, and it, it, it'll take some uh, some early adopters, I think, to, to really try and uh, break this uh, this hold that, that the major providers have. But uh, I, I fear it won't be in the short term. Okay. Now, do you think ETFs and trackers following less well-known indices are a good option? I think what's important is that every investor knows exactly what they're investing in. So I'm all for new entrants coming, trying to break into markets. Uh, And if they explain what they're doing clearly, uh, the investor understands that. Uh, So if we took the BATS example uh, there and compared that to the FTSE 100, uh, if we could clearly see either how similar they are or where the differences are, uh, then that's great. Um, So I I don't think it's a case of necessarily uh, being good or bad. I think a choice is a good thing uh, in the market. But, But as we've seen with the likes of FTSE, it's so well established that it is uh, it is a real uphill struggle for anyone to break that stranglehold. Okay, well, picking up on um, choice, which you, you mentioned just now, do you think there's a serious risk that there'll be fewer providers offering ETFs and trackers which track popular indices um, because of this price squeeze? And would that be a problem for investors? I think the world of passive investing is essentially a scale game. You, you need significant assets to make it work for your business model because the margins are pretty thin. Uh, and so I think that naturally makes it quite difficult for new entrants to come into the market uh, because you need a significant volume of assets to uh, to, to make some money. Uh, I think what um, I have seen or what I've thought about on this is that the Given the growth of passive investing over the last few years, it's no surprise that the likes of FTSE or MSCI are wanting to possibly get a bigger slice of the pie here. They've seen asset flow it just increased to phenomenal levels over the last few years. Uh, and I think they're seeing this as an opportunity to uh, to maybe take a little bit, uh, a bigger bigger margin, uh, knowing that they've got this position, this dominant position, and they can uh, squeeze through these, these costs. Now, what I do think it may result in is that we may have seen the bottoming out of uh, index fees. You know, we've seen some price competition over the last few years, uh, but if we've got component parts of those costs increasing, uh, maybe we won't see uh, further price cuts, uh, certainly in the short term. Okay. I mean, on that note, even with the hefty fees, ETFs are having to pay index providers for popular indices. Ultimately, their ongoing charges to investors still seem quite cheap. So should investors still use them, even knowing that a substantial part of that is going to an index provider? I think the key, the key is that for an investor, the key metric for them is what's the overall OCF and is that good value for them? Now, how that gets broken down underneath and who gets what, I, I think you know, if I could maybe speak for investors and say they're probably not that bothered in terms of who gets what. And I doubt too many will be shedding a tear that maybe BlackRock gets squeezed a tiny little bit uh, and that the largest asset manager has to give a little bit more to to the likes of FTSE and MSCI. And, and as long as the products that they're providing a good value, achieve decent tracking error and and delivering a good product, then I think investors should be relatively comfortable that those products are still right for them. Okay, thank you, Ryan. Some uh, helpful points there. And you can see Kate's full report on index providers' fees and the consequences for investors in this week's magazine and the website. 
It's exactly one year since the UK voted for Brexit, and a lot of other things have happened too, which have had an effect on markets, not surprisingly. But despite the turmoil, there have been areas that have been um, good and not necessarily the ones you'd have expected. Emma, how have UK markets fared over the past year? Well, you'll remember, Leonora, that UK stock markets sold off sharply mm. after it became and clear. maybe not surprisingly, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the pound fell against fell against dollar to a 30-year low. But since then, markets have bounced back and hit record highs. So the FTSE 100, for example, rose by 26% between the 24th of June last year and the 15th of June this year. And one of the key reasons for this is due to the fat fall in the pound that we mentioned, which has boosted UK exporters and also helped companies, especially on the FTSE, with overseas earnings. OK, well, that's not so bad then. So, um, I mean, that's 26%. I mean, that's really good. Is that the... Yeah best part of the, the, you know, the UK markets and the FTSE 100? Um, well, actually, perhaps surprisingly, the area that's been one of the best ones is UK smaller companies. Okay. According to fund experts, the UK smaller companies fund sector rose 36% um, compared to the UK all companies average of 27%. And considering that, you know, when the, the surprising vote happened... Yeah, um, so the domestic thought, facing. Exactly, people were suffer, worried... But- People were worried that um, as these companies were more domestically focused, they were going to be harder hit by the vote for Brexit. Um, That hasn't turned out to be the case so far. Okay, but I think a point to say would be, you know, there's been a vote for Brexit, Brexit hasn't happened. So if UK domestic is going to get battered, it's when that actually happens. Mm. So my next question would be, all right, we've had a good year. Um, We haven't actually Brexited, but going ahead, can UK smaller companies continue to do well? Well, the analysts that we spoke to had mixed views on this. Um, Some thought that the performance of smaller companies so far um, has shown that there is still confidence in the UK. And considering that smaller companies tend to have good growth generally, um, they could still outperform. But others were, as you say, worried about the fact that we've still got so much uncertainty. um, We don't actually know the deal that we're going to get. And if there is a Brexit-induced slowdown, it's likely to hit smaller companies hardest. Yeah, it's it's unclear at the moment. Ryan, perhaps you can shed some light on this conundrum. Um, Why do you think UK smaller companies' funds have done well over the past year, in spite of everything that's going on? And do you think they can continue to do well going forward? I think we've learned a few lessons over the last year, which is it's not to get overly focused on politics. Politics is a, is a great distraction. We all love talking about it. But when it comes down to it, what's really crucial is what's going on in the economy. What are companies telling you? What are management telling you about their business performance? And I think what's been surprising post the, uh, the Brexit referendum uh, is um, that UK economy has been doing OK. Uh, and um, company data has been fine uh, and it surprised a lot of people that it has been that strong and I, I, I think that, that surprise and resilience um, has uh, been probably one of the key reasons why smaller companies uh, has, has done so well and outperformed uh, large cap and it also it's benefited from this entire risk on environment across the world where people have just been comfortable taking risk almost regardless of what's going on um, but politics has certainly, I think, proven to be a big distraction over the last year. You could have, if you'd predicted Brexit and you'd predicted Donald Trump, uh, you probably would have been very risk off in your portfolio uh, and had a lot in cash and you'd have been totally wrong. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a lesson to all of us and a reminder that we should focus on companies, focus on the real economy uh, and not necessarily, uh, and perhaps a good lesson for life, not necessarily what politicians are, are telling us all the time.
Definitely. With that in mind, um, do you think UK smaller companies will have a good few years ahead? Well, I think certainly they do have a Brexit challenge when that when that happens, whatever that deal looks like, and when we see more clarity uh, on the uh, on the shape of that deal, I think it does have the ability to slow the UK economy uh, across the board, and that could create a headwind uh, for for smaller companies as the domestic uh, economy slows down. So I think it it certainly I think it points towards a more challenged environment going forward but i wouldn't necessarily see it as a as a very negative uh, outlook because i certainly think that we have in the uk we still have pockets of excellence in in what we do and and good companies will thrive if you if you're a, if you're a market leading business that's got a dominant product uh, and you've got pricing power then whether you it's brexit or no brexit that's unlikely to change uh, and people are likely to still want your product Okay. Now, we've been very focused on the UK, but there's a whole wide world out there and lots of things been going on in it. So, Emma, what other areas have performed well over the last year? Europe-focused funds and Asian and emerging market equities have also both done very well. And the reasons for this are various. I mean, Asian and emerging markets are being powered by long-term positive structural forces like a growing middle class, um, still very strong economic growth. And Europe is enjoying a bit of an economic recovery, especially as it's still relatively cheap compared to other developed markets. So those are two areas that we've seen perform very well as well in the last year. So Ryan, um, thinking about the rest of the world, um, what areas do you think might do well over the next few years? Well, I think certainly if we, if we started just in the UK, I think there's there's an opportunity for UK large cap to actually do OK on a relative basis if we see weakness in uh, in the currency uh, in sterling. We, we remain uh, the UK, uh, the FTSE 100 is dominant, dominated by overseas earners. Uh, and it, and in some ways it's not UK, is it? Exactly. Yeah. And we're... Around seventy percent of earnings come from overseas. So if we see uh, if we see Brexit get a little bit challenged and that filters through into a weakness in the currency, then that could certainly support UK large cap. Looking away from that, uh, we've just talked about Europe. I certainly see a European recovery as as uh, as well becoming quite well uh, entrenched now, and that that's a definite positive uh, for investors. They remain uh, undervalued relative to US equities, uh, and I think people have forgotten about Europe. It it, was, uh, it seemed to be the area that where people were tipping to be the worst area for 2017. And uh, as someone that certainly believes in mean reversion, that's no surprise to me that when everyone is, is hating something, that's a good time to start having a good look at it. So I'm not surprised that Europe uh, is recovering. We'd expect that to continue over the next couple of years uh, as it's coming from a relatively low base. Looking further afield from that uh, and on a much longer term horizon, I see markets like India as still very attractive. They've had a very good run, uh, but they've got uh, very interesting demographics, a stable government, a democracy, uh, which is important and is pretty much the fastest growing economy uh, in the world right now. And it it often is in China's shadow uh, in terms of where a lot of attention gets focused. But I think there could be uh, an opportunity over perhaps on a five-year view now to, uh, to 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 make some uh, some some good profits. Okay, some interesting um, opportunities there. Now on the let's say the downside, what areas do you think won't do so well? Mm, I mean, that, I think that's uh, it's a, it's a challenging question at the moment because it, it really it feels like economy and markets are a little bit stretched and. 
almost at a crossroads. If there are, if there are, and I've talked about politics, not wanting to be dominated by politics, but there are some big geopolitical issues going on around the world that I think have the ability to to derail markets. You know, we've got we've got the uncertainty around Donald Trump. Uh, we've got we've got North Korea. We've got the Middle East and what's going on there at the moment, which I think is not getting uh, a huge amount of attention. And all of these issues have the ability to to curtail markets and and, and lead to, uh, to to an element of of a correction. But I think certainly any particular areas. Uh, in the UK, for UK investors, government bonds continue to look expensive, uh, and with the political uncertainty that we now have with the with the minority government and how long that can last, I think that does have an impact on uh, on gilt yields and, and could certainly be an area which is more challenged in the short term. Uh, and more more broadly, we've just talked about UK's small cap. That if the Brexit negotiations go very badly uh, and we end up in the no deal is is better than a bad deal uh, well I mean that that certainly could be very challenging in the in, in the UK so I would I would be, be worried certainly about fixed interest uh, in the short term uh, and be very focused on on brexit and the nego- negotiations see how they go uh, as to how I, that would influence my UK equity allocation okay but would um would you say that you know there's anything people should resolutely avoid or more let's say be discerning with how much they allocate resolutely avoiding is uh, after having done this for 20 years is generally a recipe for disaster because it generally is a thing you get completely wrong mm. um, so I, I think you need to be you just need to be circumspect I think at this, at this moment in time there's a I think it's very easy to sit here and build a bear case but also you can you can still make a, a pretty decent bull case uh, and in that environment I think it pays to be diversified uh, it, it pays to uh, to not get carried away with the exuberance of certain sectors of the market you've seen in the US nearly all of the growth this year has been dominated by five stocks and the S&P 500 the other 495 haven't really gone anywhere mm. five being what the fangs the fangs yeah. uh, exactly uh, and so, so it's easy I think to, to get caught up in that kind of excitement uh, and in those kind of narrow uh, rallies you do need to be careful that uh, that something doesn't come around to uh, and bite you quite quite sharply Okay, thank you, Ryan. Some interesting insights. And um, if you are interested in FANGs, aka US tech stocks, we do have an article on our website that covers tech stocks as well. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. So it just remains to thank Emma Ajumang and Kate Bailey at Investors Chronicle and Ryan Hughes, Head of Fund Selection at AJ Bell. You can read more on the inclusion of China A-shares in MSCI Emerging Markets Index, the effect index fees have on ETFs and the investment areas that have done well since the vote for Brexit in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.